who will survive? Means nothing. Nothing means nothing. What do you mean by that? I'm talking about all the way to the top. Yeah. Unjustifiably in a position that I'd rather not be in. But the cream rise to the top. give you a show like you have never ever seen before why because i can hello everyone and welcome to the positively pro wrestling podcast and today we have the special interview uh we talked about i think last week eric and i talked about it uh, a new book is out called k fable love story and um, we have the author on now dave Ruder. dave how you doing Steve, not too bad. Thanks for having of me. Of course. And thank you uh, for introducing me to this book. And <laughs> we'll, we'll talk all about it. We'll get your whole background and all that stuff. But really quick, I'm going to read the, in case you missed it last week, I'm going to read kind of the back cover. So in case you're wondering, what's this book about? You know, there's a million wrestling books, but it's not a biography where the wrestlers tell the same six stories over and over again, like DDP talking about how Macho Man called him on Thanksgiving and all this other stuff, like he said 6,000 times. So here we go. On February 5th, 1988, former World Wrestling Federation champion Hulk Hogan made a damning allegation. He accused the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase, of fronting the bill for a desperate man's risky and invasive procedure, facial plastic surgery to look like referee Dave Hebner, and I believed him. Paying homage to 1987's WrestleMania III, Kayfabe Love Story is a collection of 87 essays written in an alternative universe where professional wrestling isn't scripted and the match results aren't predetermined. So step around the shards of glass from the broken barbershop window and cozy up next to your favorite middle turnbuckle because a love story is indeed a happening. So this is, as it said, 87 essays, short stories, whatever you want to call them, of various events from 1985, is it? Or 80, was, was that where it's, when you started it? Or wasn't like the... WrestleMania 1 through 93. Okay. So 85 through 93, which is like this, you know, the retro wrestling fans kind of sweet spot uh, for sure. So... Let's get first off. You've written a couple other books um, about Philadelphia sports, so yep. I guess let's start. Where are you from? How old are you? How did you? Have you been a wrestling fan your whole life? Let's start from the beginning. How how sure. we got to kayfabe love story? <laughs> sure. So, uh, uh, late thirties. I turned forty in a few months. Me too. So, when's, uh, your, when's your birthday? Yeah. We got to look up what the card was on your birthday. Yeah, April, right? Uh, April twenty fifth. Yeah, twenty fifth, nineteen eighty four. So I'll pull that up as you're talking. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm a Philly boy. I uh, love all the Philly sports teams. And I started writing just as, as a hobby uh, in the 2000s when everyone had a blog. Everyone who had, as anyone had a blog, I had a blog about Philly sports. And I was writing about the current sports landscape. The Phillies were very good at that time. The Eagles were always pretty decent. And I was writing about uh, the current teams, how they were doing. And I was one of like 700 Philly sports blogs. And nobody read it. I think maybe my mom read mm -hmm. it. I think maybe my brother read it like once a month. So one day I wrote about a random former Sixer by the name of Charles Shackelford. Charles Shackelford in this story isn't that important, but he is famously known for saying, I'm not left-handed. I'm not right-handed. I'm amphibious. <laughs> and I wrote about Charles Shackelford. And all of a sudden I had a few people comment on my blog post. They're like, oh, I remember him. I remember him. And I was like, ah, oh, maybe I'm on to something where everyone is writing about the Karen sports scene, why don't I write about these guys from my past? So that's how A Sixers Odyssey was born, which is my first book I wrote during the height of COVID, which is short chapters, just like Kayfabe, a love story, written about the random obscure players from the 76ers. So like, I don't talk about Charles Barkley or Allen Iverson or Julius Irving. I talk about the bench guys, the guys who came and left as quickly as they arrived. And then I wrote a second uh, follow-up called a Phillies Odyssey, same concept. I don't write about Mike Schmidt or Chase Utley, my favorite player. I write about the the fifth starters or the middle relievers. So Kay Fable Love Story was, uh, Steve, my wife books the territory in my house. Sure. And when I was kind of deciding on my third book, she goes, you sure about pro wrestling? You love pro wrestling. I grew up with it, right? Uh, you know, it's a golden era, the Hulk Hogan years were like, you know, my fandom beginning of that. And I kind of thought about in the back of my mind is, yeah, but what's my angle? 
and I think where I struggled with is everything now is on the shoot side, mm-hmm. right? Every podcast covers the shoot side. Every professional wrestler has a podcast or has written a biography. Kayfabe's been dead for about 20 years or so. Unless right? you're Arn Anderson. So like, He's still keeping right. it. <laughs> Arn being the exception there. So I was kind of like, I didn't want to write that. And the stories have been told so many times. I'm not a wrestling journalist. I was never a professional wrestler. Like, what could I add to the story? So I just started watching wrestling uh, from my youth. It kind of jogged my memory to see if I can, you know, anything would kind of strike a chord. And I started watching the Saturday night's main events. Those were the first shows that I watched while writing this book. And it, because those were on so late that a lot of the matches, Steve, I had seen probably through YouTube throughout the years, but I don't, I never remember watching them live because they were on too late. Yeah. Wrestling challenges, superstars were on in the morning, right? And it was November, 1989. And it was a match between the big boss man, Still heel managed by the Slickster against the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. And American Dream, when he got in the ring, he started talking to the ref. And it was Dave Hebner at the time, starts, you know, kind of talking in his ear. And all of a sudden, the ref comes over to talk to the Slick, who's outside the ring. And Ventura and McMahon are kind of like, oh, what's going on here? You know, what's the ref saying saying to the Slickster? And the Slick pulls out his wallet, hands the ref what appears to be a business card. And Jesse Ventura says, oh, that's it. The Slick is showing the ref his manager's license, proving he has a right to be at ringside. And Steve, I was in my living room. I started hysterically laughing. <laughs> I was like, Slick's been in the WWF since 1986. It's November 1989. And now all of a sudden we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What's the doctor style doing here? Yep. What right does he do at ringside? And I thought that was so hysterical and effective in Torah, so matter-of-factly with a straight face says, oh, he's showing his manager's license. As if like that had ever been a thing in all the years of professional wrestling, that Bobby Heenan or Classy Freddie Blassie or Mr. Fuji had a hand their manager's license to the referee, and the referee would cross their T's and dot their I's, and the match would go on without a hedge. And I saw that, and I said, that's the book. I said, why would I worry about the shoot side of things? It's been covered so often by podcasts and books, and I've probably seen more YouTube shoot interviews than I care to admit, so I'm absolutely the target audience yeah. there. But I can't add anything. So what if I basically went back in time and as a 39-year-old guy watched all this wrestling uh, from my childhood and wrote about it in kayfabe? Do you feel as like you have – I'm going to interrupt you because I, I want to get to – I have a bunch of questions too. Sure. Reading your book here and then for – and I don't know if you've ever read the blog or are familiar with Dinosaur Dracula, Matt from Dinosaur Dracula. I am. Okay. Your writing style reminds me a lot of his where there's like little comments like – Things like um, saying, uh, I think one chapter you were talking about um, uh, the hot, the Hulk calling into like the the Macho Man hotline for if he being reinstated or not, and just talking yeah. about like how you're asking your mom. You're like, but this is important, like in your head, and those little <laughs> quips in there. So that that this is if you're up, if you're ever, if, if anyone listening to this now has ever read him, this is very similar in style. At least I thought so. Um, but when you were writing this, there's so many details and we'll get to that in a second but i was watching this i'm like was it hard to go back to some of these memories or are you just like me like a weirdo who always remembers things or is constantly thinking about stuff from when you were a kid and, sure. and bringing it up like how how did that come about writing all these details because you share memories of yourself as a kid too in this book yeah so it's it's certainly kind of uh, biographical in a way and i've always had this memory steve where i wouldn't call it photographic but if you ask me about a specific particular sporting event mm-hmm. i'm basically saying okay i was in third grade watching that and from there i could say okay that was 1993 yeah and if it was 1993 my parents living room had a green carpet right and my dad had a chair in the corner of the living room and all of a sudden it's almost like i'm putting that picture back together yeah and i th- and then from there right it's like i'm working backwards and i think wrestling sports is the similar too because you mentioned like a philly you were talking about being a phillies fan and all, all these random philly players like me and my friends are white Sox fans and like we would have just like a group chat who can name the most random White Sox player. Like it's a sure. long, long thing. Here's Lyle Mouton. And here's, you know, like, <laughs> and like you get, you, then there would be like a ruling. Like is Lance Johnson obscure? It's like, no, he was pretty good. So he's not obscure enough. Like you gotta, you gotta right. go down Absolutely. the ladder. So, Absolutely. So the same thing I think with wrestling though, because I think we were all kids, I'm your age too. I'm 39, about to be 40 this summer. And we yeah. associate, I don't know if you were like kind of a latchkey kid like me, 
like your parents kind of like either were working or kind of punted you to the to watch TV by yourself. Yep. So you feel like you're on top of the world. You have snacks, watching wrestling. So you remember all that stuff and you associate wrestling with everything else. Like whether it be your mom, you know, yelling at your sister, or cooking dinner, whatever it is, like wrestling always kind of triggers that stuff. Not only am I a latchkey kid, Steve, but I actually made a joke in the book towards the end of it. There's a chapter about uh, Lou Albano. Mm-hmm. And Lou Albano used to be on the, the Super Mario yes, Brothers yes. show. I forget, I forget the exact name. And that was on, on a cable channel called the Family Channel, mm-hmm. if you remember that, yeah. 3 o'clock. And I actually made a joke that Lou Albano basically raised mm-hmm. me. Because my parents were at work, and every time I came home after school and put on a Super Mario Brothers mm-hmm. Super Show, so like Captain Lou was basically like the third parent yeah. in my house, you know. So it is funny. You're absolutely like a latchkey kid, and you'd go home, or I would come home, and just like, and that's why I make so many references to cartoons from that day, and Say Bada Bell, mm-hmm. and Boy Meets World, and to me, it's like wrestling and pop culture always kind of blended together. Yeah. And same thing with sports. And to me, it was always a natural transition to compare, you know, Hogan and Randy Savage to an episode of Saved by the Bell, right? Like when Kelly and Zach broke up, right? To me, that's such a easy transition for me to make. And I, you know, I'm thinking the target audience like yourself, you can relate that, yeah. right? You've seen Saved by the Bell and you've seen wrestling. Yeah. It's not that big of a leap. When did you watch, when did you remember your earliest memory of being able to watch week to week? Like, okay, this is when I started watching or was it like, what year was that? Was there like a pay-per-view, an event? Because I remember for me, right after WrestleMania six is when I kind of mm-hmm. started watching week to week because I remember specifically all of Rumble 91, all of WrestleMania 7's built. So that's kind of when I remember week to week. Then if, I can't remember exactly when I was watching or when I started to go back and rent tapes. So when was your, like, sure. I'm watching week to week? It's probably the late 80s. I would probably say around the WrestleMania 5. Because where I grew up, uh, Saturday morning was superstars. But before that, it used to be Glow. Mm-hmm. Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. And I remember that. And I remember there was like a wrestler. I want to say her name was like Big Bertha. Yes. And my dad would just crack up. Because she would just come in with this big splash. And my dad felt like the most hysterical thing in the world. And to me, like that's my memories. My memories is like watching wrestling on a Saturday morning or wrestling challenge on a Sunday morning and my dad laughing at the heels, you know, cracking up at the heels and just laughing and just me like getting so mad because I'm rooting for all these baby faces and my dad, he didn't care, right? He just wanted to, he just wanted to be entertained. So like when I was going back and rewatching this, like I could picture, you know, me as a kid Mm -hmm. watching this, like WrestleMania three. My father thinks that Little Beaver getting squashed by King Kong Bundy is like funnier than the funniest movie that's ever been created. You're almost like a like a fly on the wall watching yourself and your dad like going to think like a third person, which is really cool. So we're going to talk about some of these chapters really quick, and I think it would be a good idea. I'm going to read from your book if you don't mind. Um, One, it's a quick, it's a short one, and it's one of my favorites of the book. It's called Get Well Soon, Hulk. So this will give you guys an idea of the type of essays that are in this. And this, again, this is a short one. Some are like, some are three or four pages. Some are one to two pages. This is about a page and a half here. So this, and I'll just go through it. This is called Get Well Soon Hulk. And the, the, the start of it is uh, a quote of what the actual wrestler said to kind of build up what you want to talk about. And this is from Tugboat. <laughs> Tugboat saying this, by the way, from some superstars, June 9th, 1990. <laughs> Last, I'm not going to do it. I was going to think about doing a tugboat impression, but I thought better of it. Last week, I asked all you Hulkamaniacs <laughs> out there to show the Hulkster how you really care about him, and a lot of you did. But then again, a lot of you didn't. You know, maybe you didn't hear me. Maybe you didn't understand me. Or maybe you just didn't realize how important this whole situation is. You know, I just came from being with the Hulkster, and he's in the, like, I've never seen him before. You know, he's down, man. And now we go to you. Mom, mom, where are the stamps? We got any stamps? I'm getting another guilt trip from Tugboat. Even though I'm six years old, he thinks I should grasp the gravity of Hulk Hogan's situation. The stamps, Ma, where are the stamps? You can send this to Hulk Hogan, P.O. Box 911, Venice Beach, California, 90294. And here's your letter. Dear Hulkster, how are you? How are you feeling? Your dear friend Tugboat, toot toot, shame me, cross that out, suggested that I send you some well wishes after the vicious attack from Earthquake and Jimmy Hart and the Brother Love Show. It was horrible and despicable. I haven't cried like that since King Kong Bundy squashed Little Beaver. I hope you're doing better. And this is this is where it gets like, a little bit funnier for me. Can I ask you a question? I don't mean to overstep Hulk, but why do you always go on Brother Love's show? 
It seems like nothing good ever happens there. Didn't the big boss man handcuff and strangle you with a nightstick like a year and a half ago? Not like victim blaming you or anything, just something to think about. I haven't sent much mail before, Hulkster, aside from a few letters to the editor over at Highlights Magazine. I've only sent a Get Well Soon card to Matilda after she returned home to Davy Boy and Dynamite. I'll never forgive those Islanders. I hope you can read my handwriting. Anyways, I saw Mean Gene Oakland wearing his Hulk Hogan friendship bracelet. He vowed never to take it off until you return. I hope to get a bracelet soon. I just spent two months allowance on a Hulk Rules beach towel, so I need to save up. We are all in solidarity, brother. Oh, why again didn't President Jack Tunney exercise your rematch clause with the Ultimate Warrior? Stupid Tunney. We need you to come back, Hulk. I need you. The Tugster needs you. We all need you. We need Hulkamania to run wild again. You're a little Hulkamaniac, Dave. P.S. I'm sorry this letter was so late. My mom didn't have any stamps. So that gives you an idea, guys, of like the the calling out the kayfabe portion of it. It's like, yeah, Hulk, why are you going on the Brother Love show? Like nothing <laughs> good happens to you on that. You get, and later, you know, you get squashed by Earthquake. You get beat up by, you know, uh, the big boss and all that stuff. So as you're going through these stories, that's a, a big story. But there's also like random episodes of Raw where like Tito Santana's Matador debut. Like how did you pick? what to write about. You picked 87, which is a lot, but how'd you pick sure. what to write about? So when I wrote down, when I decided on the premise of the book, I wrote down about 40 chapters. The first chapter I wrote down was Steamboat Savage. Everyone has a match. What I fell in love with pro wrestling. That's mine. Uh, the second chapter I wrote down was going to be about Jack Tunney. I knew Jack Tunney deserved his own chapter. And so I had about 40 ideas. And then I started watching and I wanted to not write down 87 ideas. Not that I probably could have anyway in <laughs> day one. But I wanted to give myself that buffer. So if there were chapter ideas that maybe I wasn't thinking about, the rewatching would be like, you know, that's a great one. There's one regarding a random Tuesday Night Titans episode by a guy named Paul Christie, who I had never heard of. I don't remember seeing a TNT episode. I watched that episode. It's eight and a half minutes. You can find it on YouTube. It is so bonkers that I saw that and I was like, my head was spinning. That was a chapter. So a lot of it was just I didn't want to – 87 chapters, Steve, you can hit on all the the main plot points. But I think the kind of – where the value in the book is in entertainment value isn't just writing, yeah, I write about Hogan Savage. I write about Hogan and Andre. But it's you know Tito Santana turning into El Matador and writing about his debut match with Tanaka. Right. Right. To me, that I think that's the beauty. It's not just the highlights. It's also kind of the B-side tracks, so to speak, where it's you'll get 87 chapters and it's covering the whole gambit. It is a major storyline, and I literally tried to, of all those wrestlers from that era, basically mention every one of them. I, I wish I could have done an index, but it, well, I would probably still be working on the index yeah. for as many times these wrestlers were uh, uh, you know, mentioned, but I really wanted to cover everything. The book isn't just about Hulk Hogan. Now, Hulk Hogan's probably focused on like five or six chapters, but the book isn't just about Randy Savage. Yeah. It's from all those wrestlers from that time frame. So to me, I I got a lot of value in being able to write about these lesser-known storylines. The Red Rooster and Brooklyn Brawler. That was one I wrote early on. I really enjoyed writing that one because it's like, gosh, I haven't thought about that storyline. And like the fact that the Brooklyn Brawler hit Gorilla Monsoon, who was like hands-off, nobody ever touched Gorilla. So the whole chapter on that is like, what kind of piece of crap sent Grill Monsoon? You know, what kind of gutter were you raised in? So to me, that's where it's like mixing in these lesser-known storylines for some of these mid-card wrestlers with the major ones. I hope it was kind of a you know a nice cocktail. So to yeah. Speak. <laughs> and, so did you were watching all this all this old wrestling and thinking about the wrestling from when you grew up, and then you just kind of went down. Okay, I need to include these characters throughout that, and you just did you just kind of pick what you wanted to write about based off the wrestlers or you're like remembering specific matches and remembering specific things. Obviously there's bit major ones. Like you write about the Jake, the snakes Cobra biting the macho man with a interesting twist about your own snake story. Um, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> but like, did you, did you go by the wrestler? Did you go by the story? Uh, by the story, what I didn't want to have happen. There's two things I kind of told myself. One, I really try to avoid giving play by play. Right. Because it's just like, Hey, Hogan's fighting Andre. If you're reading a book called K Fable Love Story, like you know who won Hogan Andre WrestleMania three. And let, like spoiler alert, oh, you know, like I don't know. <laughs> also, I'd like to thank you for not explaining what the gorilla position is, which every wrestler does in every wrestling book ever. If right. I'm reading this book, I know what the gorilla position is. You, you don't need to you explain. You have a it. pretty good idea. Exactly, <laughs> you have a pretty good idea. Yeah. So I wanted. Now there is some 
for the sake of the chapters, there is some play-by-play, but for the most part, that's not the book. That is not the mm-hmm. intent of the book. And secondly, I didn't want to just be a Wikipedia page. So, like, Greg the Hammer Valentine has, like, my favorite trope in wrestling from those years where Grill Monsoon says, Greg the Hammer Valentine takes 15 minutes to warm right. up. I don't know why that started, who started or how started it, but anytime something's slow starting, I'll say Greg the Hammer Valentine. Nobody gets the reference but me, but that's fine. It's like my favorite trope. I think I might have an so, answer for you on when that started and why it started. Do you? Yeah, so, By all means. So you ever watched the Ultimate Warrior shoot interview from years ago? You're, it's on YouTube. and Yes, that sounds familiar. Okay. He's wearing, a, yeah, He's wearing okay. a jean shirt. He's got a gray like yes. crew cut. And yes. they, he was asking, uh, the interviewer was asking Warrior about his style. And he goes, you know, you kind of run to the ring. He goes, yeah. He goes, I'm ready to go. You know, you got a guy like Greg Valentine who takes 25 minutes to get in the back. At least that was the joke backstage. <laughs> so it's a inside joke that Gorilla would constantly wow. say on on, this, on TV, like an inside joke for the people. Like, thanks, thanks, Hellwig, for breaking that mystery for me. Unbelievable. That That's incredible that it didn't even occur to me. I guess it had to be an inside joke that Montoon would say it was such a straight face. Even now, if- like, Greg Valentine, like, looks like he creaks when he moves, so... Right. He did that when he was like 32, he's though. Look, like nothing's changed. He looks the same. He looks, he's just a little bit bigger now. Or he's just wearing smaller shirts. I can't tell the difference. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, it's like Valentine's like a good example, Steve, where it's, I wanted to write about like Greg Valentine, for instance. But if I just said, oh, we got his career, you know, mm-hmm. his, his father was Johnny Valentine. And then he used to be a member of the Dream Team. At that point, I might as well send you a link to Wikipedia. Yeah. So I really, as opposed to focusing on a wrestler... It's really focused on a storyline or a match. Like I have Hogan versus Hercules, that Saturday Night's Main Event in 1986. I have Hogan against the Genius. The chapter is more about the Genius. Hogan and Andre, it's more of kind of their build-up. So it's not so much just writing about a wrestler and here's their biography. You know, it's just more of a particular match or particular storyline. And really, the the biggest kind of litmus test, Steve, on whether the chapter was included is if I can make it funny. Like, mm-hmm. make no mistake, the, the, the intention of the book is to be funny and entertaining. And it is. And if it's, it's, and, yeah, it's, <laughs> so it's like rule one. I, I, I tried to certainly not have any chapters that wouldn't make somebody laugh. So that was the, the ultimate litmus test and everything else kind of fell in place from and there. And you also kind of poke fun at your younger self a lot throughout the book, like yep. how, how silly you thought some of this stuff was. And you talked a little bit about watching with your dad here. Your dad was laughing at how like pissed off you were about a particular wrestling match or, mm-hmm. or whatever. And a lot of the stuff I think is, is relatable to anybody who was born between 19, like 79 and like 1989. I'd say that a lot of the yep. stuff would be relatable to you. So definitely, definitely check that out if you're in that age group or if you're any type of retro wrestling fan. I know you you mentioned not doing play-by-play. That's also hard to do. I, I've yeah. tried occasionally on shows, but it's tough. Like I think our show we both love, the OVP guys, when they do mm-hmm. their pay-per-view reviews, like Joe's great at it. Like I don't know how he does it, but he's really, really good at not making it boring. So it, it's tough. So I think that was a good decision on your part to not just it's put so in hard. play-by-play of blow-by-blows of the matches, right? Right. Yeah. Even like the podcast I listen to, it's like when they, the podcast that do the, the live watch alongs, mm-hmm. they're, they're tough. Yeah. Right? Cause sometimes you kind of just get stuck watching. So it's almost like from like a reviewer recap probably makes more sense. And it's a bit more easier, but yeah, I get it. And I just, even like if I was, I think it was like uh, George Steele, the WrestleMania four battle Royal, I have a chapter about George Steele. Mm-hmm. And even that, like I had some like play by play, you know, I was like, Oh Dave, like this is too much. It was probably like a paragraph. But I'm like, this is like, this isn't, the, the writing's bland. It's just not that interesting. So I was trying to kind of edit that down where it's just like, people can just watch a better royal. <laughs> if they really, you know, so it's like, how do I be funny and kind of explain the action without being, you know, just a cumbersome. You had another chapter uh, about LJN wrestling figures and King Kong Bundy. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, one of the friends of, great friends of our show, the Fully Posable podcast guys, and uh, a lot of the people is nuts are figure collectors and, and all that. Sure. So- are were you a figure toy collector as a kid? Did you have figure federations and all that, or is, how did that go for you? Grow and did that kind of enhance your viewing, or were you just just watching wrestling? Sure, yeah. So definitely the LGN guys. Not so much uh, the later figures uh, after that uh, Hasbro, mm-hmm. but definitely the LGN ones. Yeah, and the same thing. I had that ring. The ring was cracked in a half because I had so many wrestlers. Like that's how I transported mm-hmm. it. The ring, I had like the 30 wrestlers in the ring. I'd carry it to the garage, 
And then when I want to play with my character in the living room and King Kong Bundy, I would have him flying all over the living room. I think Bundy cracked it. Okay. I mean, but Bundy Bundy couldn't get past like a, you know a TSA pre-check. You know, <laughs> like that thing is like a that thing's a viable weapon. So um, yeah, I think it, it was part of it, right? Like I remember like just like going to like. KB Toys, which may not even exist anymore. No, it definitely like doesn't exist like, anymore. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, like once a month or once every couple months, like after church, and my dad would let me, like, you know, pick out a figure. Mm-hmm. And I, I, like, realized, like, early on that, like, the big names, like Bruno San Martino, it really mattered, like, where their hands and legs were positioned. Yeah. Like, Bruno San Martino is, like, the living legend, but, like, his hands were by his waist. He was useless. Like, Paul Orndorff, in my mind, was, like, the greatest LJN figure because he has a double flex. You can do, like, suplexes. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's, like, as I was, like, thinking about how do I break up a couple of these chapters with something wrestling-related but not, you know, not kind of the kayfabe premise, the LJN figures was, like, an easy inclusion because, like you said, if you're, you know, born between a certain age group and you watch wrestling during, like, the whole Kogan years, you probably had LJN figures. And like, you know, I did, everyone knows that King Kong Bundy one weighed 50 yeah. pounds. Did you? And I was able to kind of draw back from, you know, my personal experience, you know, as a kid, I think that's relatable. Did you have friends that were wrestling fans growing up or siblings or was it just you? More of my siblings. Yeah. My brother, a friend, friend in the neighborhood, but nah, not for the most part. Were you just, yeah, like, just the, like a the crazy, group, like yeah. you were the most obsessed and they were kind of just along for the ride? Yeah, it was certainly that. I have this like this crazy memory. I just like remember so much random stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, don't ask me what I had for breakfast this morning, mm-hmm. but you know, if you need me to like you know talk about the the Rougeau brothers for thirty minutes, like I'm your guy. You know, so it's like <laughs> it's weird what you kind of gravitate to. But yeah, I wouldn't say that. You know, and even like I don't remember even going to an actual uh, like World Wrestling Federation event as a kid because I just don't think my parents would have taken me. Like they were fine with me watching it, but like. 90, 1990 SummerSlam was in Philly. I didn't go to that. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't remember going to any live event. It was just like I would watch it on TV. But I just like had this memory where like, me, my memories were me watching professional wrestling as a kid. Are, did you? And I think that's where I'm able to kind of you know stick to. Did you continue watching, or did you become a lapsed fan? Are you watching still? Like what? What is your current fandom with wrestling? I definitely stopped. You know, I think I I was a huge Bret Hart guy. Mm-hmm. So it was Ricky Steamboat and then Bret Hart. And after 97 Survivor Series, I started. I kept watching when the WCW, but then WCW got so bad that I stopped watching. I was so out of the loop that I remember being in college and someone saying, "Did you watch the Rock Hogan WrestleMania match?" And my response was, "Wait, Hogan's in the WWE? I had no idea. Yeah. Like that's how like out of the loop I was." So for the most part, no, I had like anything on the 2000s. Like I could never write a book about wrestling from the 2000s on. I just wasn't involved enough but uh, i try to i think twitter makes it easier for me to kind of stay in touch because i just see people post about it all the time mm-hmm. and i see clips but uh, i don't think I'll, I'll watch you know royal rumble wrestlemania but nothing crazy yeah i think i i kind of became like lapsed around 2000 ish like i was 16 yeah, same 2000 and then i came back at about 2007 um, I don't, I think I joke, I think it's because, cause like, I think it's because I started getting, I moved in like with my girlfriend moved in with me. I'm like, all right, well, I guess I'm just going to hang out with you and watch wrestling while you watch your stuff. I was like, I got nothing else to do. So <laughs> right. around that time. So, uh, that's where I kind of came. And, and now I'm in, I, I watch, I know what's going on, but it's, I'll always put on an old WrestleMania or an old survivor series or WCW or whatever it is before watching the current stuff. Not to say the current stuff's bad. It's just. It's just that sweet spot. It'll, right. it'll be, uh, and I think the, and I think, looking back, I you always wonder how much was it rose-colored glasses and how much was actually good. For me, right. I find a lot of it's really great, and some of it's not so great. Um, what did you sure. think? Like, I don't know how much you you talked about going back and watching old wrestling for this book. How much did you think was nostalgia glasses, and how much like, oh wow, this is still really great and entertaining. It's a great question. I think, yeah, it's definitely hit or miss. To me, like primetime with Heenan and Monsoon was fantastic. And it's funnier now like, as an adult too. Right, absolutely. Like, I could watch that. I would say if I was writing it, if I was writing actual chapters, I would have primetime on in the background. Mm-hmm. If I was like cleaning up around the house or making dinner, I put on an episode of primetime. I think the entertainment and the skits, because to me it was like they, they ran on the joke. Right, like they didn't take themselves too seriously. 
And I think that's why I find Girl Monsoon so funny is because he played like the straight lace character with Hina being the crazy wild one. But like to me, that's what made Monsoon even funnier. Mm-hmm. Like the things he would say would be so ridiculous. And he would just say with a straight face and like here I am as an adult just cracking up. I would certainly think, you know, just just a general day-to-day, like the squash matches, obviously you don't see that in today's, you know, climate anymore, but like a lot of Dino Bravo. So it's like, <laughs> and like I, I see a lot of Dino Bravo or like a 15-minute Iron Mike Sharp match on like prime time. And I was like, huh. I was like, yeah, I could probably, this this had to be, only to be about five or six minutes, but you know, now it's like a 15 minute time limit draw with like CV Afi. It's yeah. so like looking back on, I'm like, I don't know. Right. Maybe like the first, <laughs> maybe not everything's like the first, the, the first yeah. SummerSlam match ever ends in a draw. I was watching the first SummerSlam, like it's like a tag team draw. I'm like, what are we doing here? Tag team it draw. Was a 20, it was a 20 minute draw. You had a British right. Bulldogs and a Rougeau brothers. <laughs> and even along the same lines, there is the 88 rumble. It's Steamboat and Rick Rude, mm-hmm. which is like on paper should be fantastic, but it's almost like it treated like a house match. Yeah. And that was like 20 minutes, just like all these rest holds. But I think rest, the actual wrestling is so much more athletic now. And it's, you know, it's everyone doing all these crazy high spots and whatnot. So it's so different. So you have to kind of know that going backwards. Yeah. You know, Dino Bravo's not doing that. <laughs> you anymore. mentioned the Gorilla and Bobby stuff in our last show. We just did the Rumble 93, which was the last mm-hmm. Gorilla and Bobby. And I just yeah. pulled up my show notes, just the funny, because I wrote down, there was so many, they were cooking that whole show, Bobby and sure. Gorilla. And there was doing Bret Hart's match with Razor Ramon, and Bobby Heenan goes, he's a quitter. Gorilla, talking about Bret Hart, Gorilla, he is not Bobby Heenan. His dad is Gorilla. What? <laughs> he's just all mad at him, <laughs> like just furious at him. Just, they're just riffing off of each other. I think Monsoon getting so mad mm-hmm. what Heenan would say, like I think that was like to me that was the punchline. It was and- obviously the Heenan's punchlines were great, but Heenan's or Monsoon's reaction to it, like it'd be so incredulous. And, and like, like yeah, you know. And then looking back with, with some interviews with Bobby before he passed, they asked him like, "How were you able to have such great chemistry with Gorilla?" He goes, "Because I had nothing to lose." He goes, "I was the brain." He goes, "Whatever I said." <laughs> he goes, "Even if it was stupid, I'm I'm supposed to be stupid. I'm the brain." He's like, "So I could right, say whatever exactly. I wanted." And that, that and you, look, you look back, like, wow, he was just riffing, being hilarious the entire right. time. And if you ever read his book, it's just a lot of just anecdotes, really. It's not a really deep biography. Sure. Um, and he's got some funny stories in there. You mentioned King Kong Bundy, and it's got my favorite joke where he says he's on the plane with King Kong Bundy, and Bundy's asleep next to him. And he goes, and the flight attendant asks, she goes, what would you like to drink? He goes, oh, I'll have you know, a vodka, and he goes, he'll have a bucket of fish. <laughs> he pointed to King Kong Bundy, just like hilarious stuff like that, you know? Right. Just just great stuff. Um, when you were watching as a kid, how were how important were the, the renting the videotapes to, to find out, kind of like piece together what you were missing over the years? Sure, a huge. So, Bexy, my aunt used to own a video store. This is like pre-Blockbuster, if you remember, like every video yeah. store, like, there's one on every block. We had like a Hollywood video, et cetera, et cetera. But she owned a video store, and then tell I, I owned three VHSs, WrestleMania 3, 4, and 5. Mm-hmm. So I've probably seen WrestleMania 3 a thousand times. It's not an exaggeration. And then 4 and 5. So to me, that's my first memories of getting into wrestling were watching these three VHSs over and over again. And obviously of the three WrestleManias, the best match is Steamboat Savage. So that's why I gravitated towards that. So I could probably actually, you know, if I had enough beer, I could probably, <laughs> uh, in enough time, I could probably like rewrite the dialogue between Monsoon and uh, Jesse Ventura from that match there. So yeah, then I think from there is like, I was always like five months behind, right? Like, did I see 1990 Survivor Series when it came out? No, my parents never let me get a pay-per-view. They weren't paying that no. money. But five months later, <laughs> I'm going to find out who won. You know, so I was always behind there. But yeah, and I, that was just like a fabric of, uh, you know, like our childhood. I have one chapter on uh, Razor Ramon, one, two, three kid. And I started off with by talking about the Nintendo game Battletoads, which is like the concept of Battletoads is like still in like today's lore because it was made so difficult mm-hmm. that it couldn't be beaten to basically bypass the people who were just running it and then beating it, never buying it. So the creators of Battletoads made the game so difficult that you couldn't just rent it from a video store. Mm-hmm. You had to buck up and pay this, that thirty nine ninety nine. Yeah. So it's a long winded way. I talk about Razor Ramona one two three kid, but yeah, like video like that's just like another just another example of like someone who like was born in the eighties and like their childhood and kind of you know what they resonate with. Yeah, I remember my I had a, obviously the video tapes are huge for for me and everyone knows that it listens to the show. I built a wrestling video store in my basement, and wow, uh, I remember my local mom and pop store. 
like every like few years they would have a sale of the tapes that like no one rented anymore and of course mm-hmm. like a lot of these wrestling tapes like i think i was the only one renting SummerSlam 92 over and over again you know so like i bought it for like a dollar i'm like this is amazing and it was for a dollar you right. know so it was a it was a big deal you couldn't just i think around 97 when wwf home video came out when you can go to suncoast in the mall and buy tapes for 10 bucks is when it got a little you know more easier right. but before then you know people don't know the kids these days have it easy uh another thing you, you do through here is you call out you might we already talked about bobby heenan and how great he was but you you have a chapter here about jimmy hart and it makes me laugh because you call out jimmy hart wasn't cool he wasn't funny he didn't have friends he was just this annoying guy with a megaphone and it's so funny too as a kid i was like man i hate jimmy hart like i yeah. could stand bobby heenan i could deal with slick you know all even all the other managers i could deal with but jimmy hart just got under your skin like he was just even as a kid like this guy sucks you know right. you're, you're furious at him so it's cool that you, you called that out and how obnoxious he was uh, any other things when you were a kid that you just hated like a, that wrestling got you like man this pisses me off uh, well certainly the first chapter is about the two dave hebners right and like i like i was ready to like put like a fifth through the drywall Hogan like, lost I was his just, belt, but it's insane. I, I was i never i never saw him lose right. like he just never lost and even i even commented before like someone goes well actually dave and I was like, listen, I know he lost by count out the 87 Survivor Series, but my parents were not buying me any pay-per-view. Yeah. So like, I probably I probably didn't see that until like 1996. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, like Hogan never lost there. So I, I was like with those crazy moments where it's like, you know, you know Hogan and Savage. Mm-hmm. Like in my mind growing up, like Savage was a bad guy. But then you rewatch it and you're like, dude. Like Hogan's like all up on Randy's girl here. Yeah. Like <laughs> Hogan's the heel, and I think there's so many examples. Uh, Paul Orndorff, I, I think I compared him to uh, like the one of the most uh, you know tragic you know characters in television history. Right, this poor guy. Like Hogan just wouldn't answer his phone call. Like what kind? <laughs> like, what kind of jerk are you? So I think there's so many things where like growing up, I was like, oh, I can't believe that Paul Orndorff, or I can't believe Randy would you know turn his back on Hulk. But like rewatching it, and I was like, "Who's the you know who's the, who's the baby face here, and who's the heel?" And the one the one chapter, Steve, I have about uh Mr. Fuji and uh, turning on demolition for the powers of pain. Yeah. And I remember writing that chapter down like of the first forty. It was like the fifth or sixth one I wrote. But I gave it a question mark because there is no I'm like there has to be a kayfabe reason why Mr. Fuji, who was managing the tag champs in demolition, decided to turn his back on them. And then just manage the number one contenders and then demand a tag team title shot. I was like, there must be a reason why, like, why he turned on Demolition. And I started rewatching it, and there was no reason. <laughs> so then I started watching the wrestling challenges and superstars after 1988 Survivor Series to see if I was missing anything. And Fuji gave the most flimsy explanation why. And I was like, Fuji, what are you doing? I was like, you were managing the tag champs who adored you. Why would you like? Isn't every manager's goal to like manage the champions? Like you did it, right? You reached the mountaintop, and now you're like, nah. I'd rather you know manage the number one contenders and then try to you know win these belts a second time at WrestleMania five. So like, rewatching that to me, like kayfabe wise, was like driving me crazy. I'm just like, I want to like reach across the screen and like strangle Fuji. What are you doing? So I think there's like so many examples of that where rewatching it certainly gave me a, a different perspective than watching it when I was a You've kid. You've got a ton of stories in here, like all th- up through 1993, from WrestleMania one through 93. Is there any? What is? There, I don't. This is probably like picking something hard. Any favorite things when you were writing this? You're like, oh, this was really. I think this came out great, or this was a fun for just you personally to relive by sure. writing it out. Um, so yeah, it's a, gr- it's a great question. There's probably two answers to that. The first one is anything. Anytime I can include a personal story. Uh, right, I, I started off as as my hour and a half stint as a knife salesman. Oh, that's, that's yes, that cracked me up. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, obviously, the snake in the basement. So any sort of either a story about a, me playing intramural dodgeball in college. So any kind of story where I can kind of you know weave in something from my from my youth. You know, I got some enjoyment from. But I think when there's 87 chapters, I think it's any time I could present it in a different way. So like 87 chapters, obviously the challenges can they be presented in a unique way? Mm-hmm. So it's not just the same formula in the same format. So the second to last chapter is the Jack Tunney Twitter Twitter thread. So I really like how that turned out. Uh, the whole premise of the book, I have this bit where I just trash Tunney. 
everything Tony did was a terrible decision. It's kind of like my ha-ha about the political climate where everything's so divisive and everyone has their you know opinions on one you know politician or the other there. So I'm just like, I knew I was going to have a chapter about Jack Tunney, but as opposed to writing in a chapter about all his decisions that he made, you know, in the same kind of formula, what if I did like a Twitter thread as if Twitter was back around in 1995 when he officially quote unquote resigned and all his board members resigned. And it's just me as like an angry guy who hates Jack Tunney, this outlining this giant Twitter thread of all the things that Jack Tunney has done wrong. Mm-hmm. So I'm happy to when that turned out. And then early in the book, I have one on the 92 Rumble, handicapping the 92 Rumble, which I wrote on an airplane. I wrote, I was on a flight to Minneapolis in, sometime in spring of 2022, and I had my laptop, and I was excited to write, and the Wi-Fi was down on the, on the airplane. So I couldn't use the internet. And I have to use the internet for all these chapters, right? But I was like, oh, like, what a bummer. You know, I had a beer. I was ready to write. And I was like, there's any chapter I can write that I don't need any any internet service for. And I was like, well, I knew I was going to write about the 92 Rumble. And I was like, man, like, and the Masters were going on, Steve. You know, it's like they have, like, if you're betting on the Masters, here's the top five favorites, and here's your yeah. sleepers, and fate these guys. Nice. It's like, what if I applied that same premise to the 92 Rumble? So the biggest challenge in that was remembering all 30 Royal Rumble participants. I got 29 immediately, and then it took me about a half hour to remember Skinner. But I did. And I actually, the alligator I man. In, exactly. And I was I was like so mad. I was like I was counting them down like on an Excel spreadsheet. And I was like, who am I missing? Mm-hmm. But but I couldn't look it up. It was like driving me crazy until I finally remembered a Skinner. But I wrote that entire chapter like on a flight, <laughs> like a two and a half hour flight to Minnesota. But again, just any ways I can present the chapters a bit different. Yeah, and in the last chapter is the Macho King Randy Savage, and uh, the Ultimate Warrior. The retired man match, the love story with Elizabeth, which I still contend that entire thing is the best thing the WWF has ever done from start to finish. Yep. The match, the whole thing, it's just it's just amazing. And one day I'm going to do a three hour breakdown of that entire thing. Um, yep. But that was something that I've seen that a hundred, more than a hundred times, five hundred, six hundred times. I've seen that match right. and that whole thing, but it's still they just nailed it right. And even in your like in your kayfabe writing they nailed it so anyway you look at it they nailed it is yep. there anything when you were doing this book you're like okay in kayfabe they nailed this but also like knowing like shoot or whatever you want to call it they nailed that too like they, this this is sure. still great to, to me it has to be steamboat savage mm-hmm. right it just uh it's, it's the match that kind of drew me in there Rewatching, I could watch Steamboat Savage five times in a row right now and do the exact same thing tomorrow and never feel tired about it because there's always like something else to pick up on it. And to me, it was the angle. And you know, throughout that chapter, I have like quotes from the match. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a Jesse Ventura. <laughs> I actually sent someone a book and I used this quote in the inscription where it says, uh, "You know, people say Ricky Steamboat has a lot of heart. Personally, I think he has a lot of throat." <laughs> and I'm just like, what a ridiculous. What does that even mean, Ventura? Like, how does somebody have more or less throat? <laughs> but, like, lines like that just killed me. And I think and Ventura, I remember seeing a shoot interview and with Jesse, who knows how much is uh, the truth surprise somewhere in the middle. But he was suing McMahon. You know, he was always, you know, suing Vince yeah. McMahon for something or another. And I guess I guess the lawsuit was over, like, royalties from, like, the Coliseum videos. Yeah, I think well, that's, that's – Yeah, where, he's like, that's, that's my voice on there, McMahon. Right. <laughs> That's that's a pretty good mentor. That's a pretty good mentor. <laughs> you also have to and shake that, when you're talking, like he does now too. So. <laughs> and I think they were. I think that basically what his attorney did is they made the jury watch Steamboat Savage on mute, mm-hmm. and then they made a watch Steamboat Savage again with commentary. Yeah. And jury could basically, according to mentor, obviously I wasn't there. The the jury could see the difference, like how much more the commentary meant to the match. And to me, like, that stands out. Like, Steamboat Savage isn't just the wrestling, which was ahead of its time. It wasn't just the angle of Ricky Steamboat, you know, seeing a speech therapist because, you know, gosh darn, he's got to crush larynx because that dastardly Randy Savage, who I absolutely loathed. But it was the commentary, right? It was the finish. It was the crowd. It was Alan Parsons' project was Ricky Steamboat's theme song, and it was awesome. And I can't watch it anymore because of uh, royalty rights. So to me, that was perfect from beginning to end. Kayfabe, the story was fantastic. Shoot, the story of you know Randy and Ricky, you know, writing down you know every step one by one and having reciting it and memorizing it over and over again. I think that's like you know parallel or you know right in line with uh, Savage Warrior from WrestleMania Seven, where it's 
no, no notes. Yeah. <laughs> and you mentioned in that the Alan Parsons project song and, and there's luckily there's, I don't know how much you're aware of, but there's still a community of quote unquote tape traders, right? That I'm, that I'm in where it's people gathering original footage as, as right. minicule as it might sound. And someone brought up a point, I think on Twitter, like there's going to be a an entire generation of people that think Hulk Hogan and Nitro and WCW walked out to the NWO music, not Voodoo right. Child. And like, why yeah. is he doing a chop with this? Like, why is he saying edge of my hand? Why is he mouthing that and all that? Right. Um, it's crazy, right? Yeah. And you know, I think, Steve, the worst music that's been dubbed over. I know what you're going to say. Like, uh, I was going to say Rick Rude. No, it's got to be the Don't Go Mess With a Country Boy one. Oh, that is. Because it's just like a banjo. <laughs> that is. That is like like some of them didn't even try. Right. Hillbilly Jim is a great one. Yeah, that's a great. The Rick Rude one doesn't even sound remotely like mm-hmm. his entrance music. So when he does like all right, cuts of music and he starts doing his gyrations there, the music they play over, and I'm like, oh, this doesn't even fit. Like it drives me. Like who's the DJ? Yeah, it drives there's me crazy. there's so many different ones, and there's so many depending on which version you're watching. Like there was a time when Demolitions was dubbed over. There's a time when Dusty oh, Roses right. was dubbed over. Oh no, but now it's not anymore because they're back. Whatever they bought the rights back or, or whatever right um, but yeah luckily there's there's groups where what they've been doing is we have the hd footage on peacock of the network so they're ripping right. that so they have the high quality footage and then they're splicing in on their computers the parts that were taken out so that wow. so that might be a little bit like lower quality but overall the presentation is great like someone i recently bought SummerSlam 92 the entire uk broadcast so those matches that aired on, I think, on Challenge with like Papa Shango and stuff like that are split right. into it. Um, so there's people that are crazier than like you and I that go that nip, and I'm glad they <laughs> exist so I could just purchase the them and, and own them and have them. Let, let do them all the way. Exactly. Work. I appreciate exactly, that. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> that does exist, and I'm glad it does, and especially with you know the WWE DVD business officially closing, the, the quote-unquote bootleggers have kind of gotten more business than ever now, the people I've talked to. Some people want to own the stuff because you never right. know when someone's going to do something crazy and they're going to get erased from history and or whatever else. Right. Steve, all we want to do is watch Hillbilly Jim with Don't Go Mess With The Country That's Boy. That's true. Or you know, the Godwins, like, you know, whoever. They, right. you know, they exactly. had that song too, but... We don't ask for much. The bar is so low for <laughs> it's us. It's true. It is very, very true. It's very, very low. Um, how when did how long how long did it take you to write this book? When did you start it? When did you when did you put you know type the first words to? All right, I got the physical copy in my hand. Sure. Uh, two years. I actually naively thought that I could watch every wrestling match, pay per view, Coliseum video in four months. Mm-hmm. And that was so fun. <laughs> I was <laughs> it was impossible. Uh, it was way it was way it was way longer. Like than super four tape and stuff like that, and you know. Yeah, like all Rels- the, WrestleFest like I, and wrestling. I I have a chapter on yep. WrestleFest ninety. I have one on the Ken Patera story because for the most part they're all on the WWE network, yeah. right? Well, on Peacock. Yeah, a lot of them are. Yeah. A lot of them are, right? Um, and then it's like the Slammies, mm-hmm. the Wrestling Challenges, Superstars, Mania. Superstars and Challenge were a challenge, uh, no pun intended, because they started like weird years. Yeah. Like Challenge was like 86 and 87 on the network. Superstars didn't start to like 91 or 92. So I had to watch a lot of YouTube and Daily Motion to kind of pick up the slack there. But I think because there wasn't a monthly pay-per-view, I was like, oh, this shouldn't be that long. It's like... Like Dave, there's 52 weeks in a year. There's well, 52 times nine. It, it took a long time, but uh, then I stopped. I basically started, you know, writing and watching simultaneously. Yeah, and then we, as kids, we were renting those Coliseum tapes, thinking we're going to strike gold with these hidden gems, and they're just shitty house show matches that they didn't air on right. TV. You know, so I have a chapter in WrestleFest '90, and I, I, who knows? I may have seen WrestleFest '90 as a kid, but I don't remember it. And the, the premise was the fans could write in what match mm-hmm, they wanted. Mm-hmm. And like the first match was like this like little kid and they showed this like letter written by a kid and he's like, I want to see Ultimate Warrior Dino Bravo. And how is this like and I, I I wasn't even planning on writing a chapter about it. But like, how ridiculous. Why wouldn't this kid say Hogan Warrior? Like it was like nineteen ninety. <laughs> so the whole chapter was just like, was this thing rigged? Mm-hmm. Like Jimmy Hart like rigged this because they said this is for the Intercontinental, you know, championship. And I'm like, maybe Jimmy Hart's behind this. Yeah. Like what what like little kid like, you know, it's like, I want to see Hogan or I want to see Warrior Bravo. Like, Warrior Bravo fought like 25 times. Why are we, <laughs> why are we trying to call and see that? So, like, to me, that was like 
I stopped what I was doing and made that a chapter. So we didn't say at the beginning, in case you were wondering where you could pick this up, you could pick it up on Amazon. Um, you can also buy the Kindle version, or if you have, a, I saw if you have like the Kindle subscription, it's part of that as well. Yeah. So you, if you're if you're a non, if you've got an iPad or the Kindle still exist, I don't know if people still have those, but you get the digital version, the hard copy to pick anywhere else. Someone can grab this book. Yeah, any anywhere and get books online. Yeah, Barnes and Noble, Bookshop.org, Pal Books. Yeah, anywhere you you get them online there. So it's published or Amazon, mm-hmm. but yeah, anywhere you buy books online. Awesome. And you sent me a copy and signed it, which I appreciate it. And I can read everyone the, the Jesse Ventura quote that you, you made out to me. Let me pull it up here. It looks like two carp in the Mississippi River going after the same piece of corn. Jesse Ventura, Saturday Night's Man Van, October 5th, 1985. So thank you for that. Um, another thing we got to do really quick here before we do a wrap up. So your birthday is April 25th, 1984? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, so what we do, we've been doing now for a couple weeks, is going to the history of the WWE book, which has every result from 19, I have from sixty three to to ninety nine. So here's your card, for in Queens, New York, at the Ridgewood Groves Arena, the Tonga Kid battled Rene Goulet to a draw. Steve, I was going to say Rene Goulet was in the opening match. To a, I honestly, to a draw. I just said a hunch. <laughs> to a draw. Come on, Tonga kid, you got to you got to win that one. Tiger Chung Lee defeated Jose Luis Rivera. Not sure who that is. Greg Valentine defeated Salvatore Bel- Bellamo. Yeah. Rocky Johnson defeated Afa. Tony Atlas defeated David Schultz via countout. That's probably a good hard hitting match. That's a, that's a big yep. win. And Intercontinental Champion Tito Santana defeated Samuela. So this was. Clearly the C the C group um, running the right. show there. So sorry you didn't get any of the of the major players there. You know, as long as I can see Rene Goulet, that's fine. Rene Goulet, I if you would have put a gun to my head, I would have said Rene Goulet was in the opening match. Amazing. So that's, that's amazing. <laughs> um, again, guys, I read a couple chapters from this book. We talked about it. Another thing that I liked about it is I'm notorious for starting a book stopping it, picking up another book, reading that, going back and forth. Like I'm, I read decent amount, but I like go back and forth between books. This is perfect for anyone that does that because it's not, you don't need to read it in order. You could just pick it up and read a random story, read it, read a few pages and put it down. It's also not in uh, timeline order. So you don't have to worry about that. It kind of bounces over to keep it fresh. So if you want something just to have, this is perfect if you're on a a book you need on like on the plane or like hey i know i had to kill some time in jury duty or something like that or anytime just just grab it and pick it up i really encourage you guys to do that and support uh dave here as an independent author writing this book um it's and of course the cover art who designed this cover art for you too we've got the got some classic wwf stuff on here who designed this cover yeah so it's a, a friend of mine his name is ernon Wright. he's a terrific artist uh lives in canada and he was he, Ernon's wonderful. I basically say, here's my vision. And then like a week later, it's just like 10 times better than anything I ever could have imagined. That's awesome. It's like on the back, on the back cover, there's all these little touches, you know, based off a, a kid's playing Nintendo. And you can see on the screen, it's Battletoads. Mm-hmm. And you can see the, the King Kong Bundy on the top shelf there. And I would just send him pictures like, hey, there's this Nintendo game called Battletoads. Long story. <laughs> hey, there's this LGN figure called King Kong Bundy. Long story. Yeah. And he doesn't even like wrestling, but he just... He just made it happen. And he drew like a belt, and I was like, great belt, but it has to be the double-winged <laughs> double eagle. Yeah. Here's a picture. And like 20 minutes later, he's like, here you go. Perfect. So the guy's incredibly talented. So uh, he designed the cover for all three of my books. And if there is a fourth, who knows? Uh, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call him up again. There you go. Do you think? Do you have a, any any future plans for writing? I know writing is kind of a intense process and takes up a lot of time. Sure. Do you have anything planned in the future? You're still kind of brainstorming? What do you got? What do you got for yourself? Every time I write a book, I say I'm retired, <laughs> and then I, I kind of get the itch. So right now I'm retired because I just wrote this one. But uh, I was cert- I think there is a lot of entertainment value if I did a sequel because I would co- pick up from 1994 and 95, yeah. which is obviously a more cartoonish era, and they get into the Attitude Era. So I think there is like the juxtaposition of both of those eras, which is a little you know cartoonish and you know, more family friendly with you know getting into the Attitude Era. I think be able to kind of mix those chapters, you know, mix those errors would be a nice touch. You know, Monday Night Wars is certainly kind of a possibility there. 
Uh, I told you before this, I was actually watching a, a Nitro from 1996. Mm-hmm. And yes, and yes, I know it's February 2024, but here I am. So, uh, I, it, but a lot of it kind of depends on reception, yeah. right? If, if people, you know, like what I write, I, I hope they do. Please tell me. Uh, and if you don't like it, you know, just talk behind my back. <laughs> you know, don't tell me. When, don't tell me when did this book come out? When was the release date? Uh, okay, so just just a couple months ago. Has yeah. has you have you gotten much feedback yet? Have you heard from anybody, or what's your feedback sure. been so far? Uh, the feedback's been great. Everyone has been, you know, it's funny, right? That's kind of, you know, first and foremost, you know, getting a lot of laughs out of, I think, you know, from, uh, you know, being an independent author, I think just getting the word out is tough, mm-hmm. right? And, and, you know, you know, you know, publications and podcasts like yourself, Steve, I think the challenge I'm running into is I'm kind of reaching out saying, hey, I wrote this book, I'll if you check it out. But in their mind, I'm just a stranger on the internet. So they're like, why? Yeah. <laughs> why? Why? <laughs> Who are you? You know, delete. So I think that's always the biggest challenge there. So I'm really kind of relying on word of mouth and just saying, you know, take a chance, you know. But I, I really, every book I write, it's the intention is to be something completely different than what's out there today. Well, and I, I think this is uh, hits the mark. I'm glad you did it. And what I'm going to do for the listeners of this show, I'm going to give away a copy. So. We will announce that next week on our show. We will figure out uh, a way to figure out a winner. It might just be as simple as liking a tweet or something like that, um, or just going to our Facebook group because that's a little more interactive and picking someone out of there. But I, I like this book so much, and I want to share with other people. I'm not going to give them my copy because my copy is personalized. Uh, <laughs> th- that's a big thing I do too. If I after I read a book, if I like it, I give it to people to someone I think will enjoy yeah. it. Um, so I will order you guys one. I will purchase a copy because I got one in full disclosure here. He sent me one for free to talk about. So in fairness, I'll purchase one to send out for, uh, for everybody. It. For sure. I really, really liked it. And I'm glad uh, you came on. You know, I've had a couple people come on to authors. I had one guy uh, a couple years ago. I don't know if I have it in front of me. Let me see if I do. I want to give him a shout out. Yes. Wait, is this it? Yep. So um, I had, his name is Lance Vaughn. Or, I'm sorry, Vinnie Berry. And he wrote the book Lance by Chance, which is pretty a little bit um, relative now based off the Iron Claw. Lance yeah. Von Erich was the fake Von Erich brother that right. Fritz tried to bring in. And it's that guy's story. No one's ever told his story before. And I was super sure. kind of like intrigued by it. So right. go, go check that out too. Vinnie Berry, independent author there too. And But this was unique in the sense that this is a completely... It's weird because wrestling is fiction, but it's not. So, like, this right. book is fiction, but it's not, right? It's your right. actual stories mixed in with the cartoon world of wrestling. So, it's it's great stuff for, for those looking to check it out. Um, Appreciate it. Anything else you want to talk about? Or where, where can they find you on social media or anything else you want to share before we wrap up? No, I think I'm good. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. Or what's it called? X now at, at Where's Ben Rivera. There you go. Ben Rivera is is the fifth starter for the 1993 Phillies. Okay. A long story. I've been looking for Where's I've been looking for Ben Rivera for 25 years. So my Twitter handle is at Where's Ben Rivera. But uh, you know, obviously, um, yeah, you purchase a book anywhere you buy books online. Mm-hmm. And the book is certainly meant to be entertaining and funny, and it's uh, obviously written tongue-in-cheek, so hopefully you guys check it out and get a kick out of it, because I really enjoyed writing it, so I hope people enjoy reading it. So I think it. I just thought you were thinking about that. Are you going to be anywhere near the WrestleMania activities in April? You know what? It's funny. Somebody asked I'm not going to WrestleMania. Me neither, but, but I'm going to be in Philly. I, so. Are you? Yeah, let's meet up. We'll, yeah, we'll have so a here's, beer for here's sure. Here's what you got to do. So one, Nate's going to be there, our, our friend Ring Skirts. Um, a bunch of the, I don't know, you're Nate read my yes, book. Yes, he did. I was talking with him a little yeah. bit about it. Um, him and I are actually staying, staying in the hotel together because him and I are buddies. Um, but Great. here's what we're going to do. Come into town, um, that Thursday or Friday, there's what's fully posable is what's called the fig life meetup at a bar. Just a bunch okay. of like-minded wrestling fans. I'll let you send you the info, head down there, meet it up. So the fully posable guys also at this meetup always do giveaways. So I will give away a copy of your book at that Fig Life meetup. So that's what we're going to do. So if you're going to be there, yeah. I think that's Friday, February 5th, um, something like that. We'll give that away. Also, you've got to go to WrestleCon just to enjoy the cr- – I love the carniness of wrestling. It's one of my favorite things. Right. And just seeing it in person is amazing. So I highly recommend if you just want to just walk around because that's what I'll be doing. I'm going to Philadelphia just to go for a couple days to WrestleCon 
and to meet up with some of my friends that go out there. That's what my friends are doing. That's what you get. You're not going to WrestleMania. It's almost like, who needs WrestleMania? I'm just trying to get a picture with like Brutus Beefcake. Exactly. Like, you know, it's like priority. That carny bastard (laughs) who tried to upcharge me for a figure autograph from 20 to $60 and I laughed in his face. I didn't laugh. I said, that's ridiculous. I yelled at his handlers. Beefcake's there and it's like, you small, like Under Armour shirt he wears now. Um, right. There's great stuff. <laughs> he's on. He's on Dark Side of the Ring. He's he's one of the. Yep. I can't wait. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's, he's, I watch them all. Talking about. Who they are. Oh, my face got smashed. I don't know what's gonna happen right, to me. It's right. like, all right, let's just talk about how Linda said you'd Hogan were gay together. Let's talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Let's. We we want to, we want to talk about. With, Sometimes I wonder how they fill up sixty minutes. Yep. You know, on those episodes, you know, but they figure it out. Yeah, I'm their audience. I'm gonna watch either way. Doesn't definitely. Matter. So, <laughs> again, guys, you can find this book anywhere you you purchase books, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You can even Google it. Again, called Kayfabe, a love story, uh, by Dave Ruder. So go check it out. And again, we're gonna give away one of these books to our listeners because uh, I really want to share this with everyone. And don't wait for if, don't even wait for the giveaway. Just go. Uh, support because one of the things we always talk about on this show is supporting other independent podcasts and supporting uh, other you know content creators, all that stuff because it's hard to do. So it's it's pretty much a uh, it's not a uh, thankless job because you get feedback and reaction interaction with people. But doing a book is a lot of work. So I really enjoyed Labor it. Of love. It was it was great. It was really good. <laughs> I really really good. So and again, check it out and please support them. And Dave, man, thanks for coming on. It was really great to talk to you about this. Steve, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. And again, next week, we'll talk about more details about the giveaway of the book, the Fig Life Meetup, all that stuff. Uh, you know where to follow the show, all the past shows in the archive. Just search Positive Processing Podcast. They're all there for free. Find some old episodes, some new episodes, all that stuff. Um, also, you can support all of our podcast buddies. You know who they are. This isn't a regular show, so we we'll don't to give everybody a shout out. Um, but again, Dave, thanks for coming on. Everyone else, we'll see you next week. Okay. Bye.